everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Magnum Reads. I'm Spencer, and joining me are PJ and Sarah. How are y'all doing? I'm good, Spencer. How are you? <laughs> Cutting to the chase. <laughs> good as well. It's been a while since we had our last conversation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and as PJ said, we are continuing through the Forward Collection with The Last Conversation by Paul Tremblay. Now, um, I have never read or actually heard of Paul Tremblay before. Do you guys? Did you guys have any background with him before this one? Uh, I... Listened to and read the story twice before. Okay. So, no. cl- so you, you grabbed another body and resurrected it each time, looking for a different yeah, experience? Yeah, pretty much. Well, it was reasonably enjoyable, so I wasn't really looking for something particularly different each time. I did not have any um, experience with uh, Paul Tremblay before, and honestly know nothing about him, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, what about you, Spencer? Yeah. Not a bit. I learned that he's probably the writers we've had so far in the Ford Collection, the one that's best known for horror. He's winner of the Bram Stoker Award. He's well regarded for horror fiction. And as we just checked on his website, his book covers just scream, I am a horror publisher. So that appears to be his bailiwick. Uh, He also has a master's degree in mathematics, according to his website. All right. Fits in well. (laughs) I like how it's according to his website. We're not sure about him, but... (laughs) Wikipedia agrees. We have two sources. That is enough for print. (laughs) But in terms of, uh, well, we'll get into the meat of the story right now, but as we always love to start, Sarah, you have a drink recommendation to pair with this story. I do. Um, And again, to remind our listeners, these are not like specifically on theme for each story drinks, but I am doing um, the series of drinks that an, uh, an AI algorithm has come up with after reading over 500 cocktail recipes. So I am I'm powering through those, which has been honestly pretty good thus far. Although, well, again... Have the names improved. No, and that is exactly where I was going because this one is... I, I don't know how they decided on the naming mechanism for the AI, but it is odd. So this one is called a Pon Kong. That's P-O-N space <laughs> C-O-N-G. Rolls off the tongue. Which, yeah, um, has too many many and not enough vowels for me. I don't know. So, um, but it is honestly the simplest of all of the cocktails that I've done from this series thus far. It is a muddled strawberry, a, or a a strawberry essentially muddled with um, a kind of floral-y gin with a homemade vanilla syrup. And that's shaken and served with a strawberry garnish. And it's, honestly, it's really good. Um, It's small. It's strong. But it is sort of, it's a little springy to be drinking in November, but it has been relatively warm today, so it's fine. I'm I'm really impressed with the diversity of the drinks the AI is churning out, because this is quite a bit variance from the last couple. I was was surprised as well. I thought that they would all be... um, Pretty sedate. Perfect for human. <laughs> I was just going to say pretty sedate variations of like classic cocktails or yeah, okay. kind of nutball things that don't make any sense. But these are like generally pretty interesting, um, certainly different combinations than I would do. And, um, you know, relatively, I mean, pretty good. So, um, this one is great. Also, BJ, I do have to give kudos to you for being able to make the vanilla syrup today because a, a package of vanilla beans arrived on our doorstep a couple of months ago. Recently? No, no, a couple of okay. months ago. I was just like, well, I might have done subscribe and save and it's going to be a permanent thing in your life and now. And now we just have 15 sure. bags of vanilla beans and no idea what to do with them. Oh, God. Um, 
No, I just had not done anything with them yet. So one of them was was sacrificed to this drink, and and it's really very cool. enjoyable. An, an individual bag or an individual bean? How much do you have left right now? No one one bean I used. I think there are five or six beans left, and like gotcha. given the um, serious vanilla flavoring as well as the sort of wafting aroma of vanilla that is coming through the strawberry <laughs> and actually overpowering the gin um one was more than enough gotcha well in terms of the uh say emotional response that the readers had to the story did they find it more than enough well so i as we talked about i think on the last pod the ratings for all of these stories are relatively consistent, and it seems like approximately the same number of people rated them and read each of the stories, so I do sort of uh-huh. trust that. The overall Amazon rating for um, The Last Conversation is a 4 out of 5, which is, is very good, but I am not interested in the 5-star or 4-star or even really 3-star rating. So, um, you know, a quick overview of the 1- and 2-star ratings again gets to the idea that as I think all of our conversations have um, mentioned in relation to these reviews, that there's no clear ending, that it's vague, um, which, okay. It's a short it's story, damn it. Um, but there are, I would say that like the biggest thing that people have is that they like the idea of the story, but don't think it was executed particularly well. And we can sort of, we can sort of talk about that. But I do have... Um, one one-star review that I would like to like to read for you all because of all the things to complain about. Um, well, this is written by an Amazon customer uh, who said was going to was going along on the read when all of a sudden the filthy language started. I'm very disappointed in Amazon to put these books out for us to read with free rental. What is the matter with writers who think they have to put filth in their books when so many more people would read if clean? So sad. What? what Did anyone else notice? language in this story no no i mean he could have said something when he tripped and fell or something like i i just i don't, I don't know. either also has like a lot of the sort of choosing beggar about it with uh the how dare amazon put these out for free rental yes <laughs> that i don't like and personally. it's not like, exactly to what? my specifications what on earth um um yeah there's a two-star that's great oh please which is titled Almost a choose-your-own-adventure yes. idea. End result, this was a choose-your-own-adventure idea without any page flipping. And just, like, I don't know what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if this person doesn't, like, maybe doesn't know how to use a Kindle and accidentally kept flipping back and forth. Um, but Also, that, that, that same review, which I, I also read and I'm now, I found again and I'm now looking at, really complains about the second-person viewpoint as, as annoying and juvenile. Juvenile? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which... Juvenile. Hmm. Is that the word for it? It's actually like a pretty sophisticated narrative technique. I don't know what exactly what to, do, what to tell you, bud. Yeah. Um, I also really love this. The mystery's a fun one. It's also very easily solved, thus deflating the last conversation's big reveal. <laughs> and it's just like, well, this isn't a murder mystery no. or a mystery at all as far as i can tell i think you want some agatha christie sir which godspeed but this is not it yeah if you, if you and don't... i don't think agatha christie writes in second person so you might feel a little yeah. bit better about it yeah two points there in terms of genre if you've read much in this genre before you could see a bit of where this one was going, sure or at least had some pretty clear theories early on about which of a couple boxes it might fall in i uh, oh go ahead spencer mm-hmm. i'm sorry 
No, no, please. please I was, I was just going to say, BJ, I'm glad that you brought, <laughs> brought this one up this review up because it also goes on to say that the style prevents inner dialogue and dampens any descriptions of the environment environs. And as I <laughs> talked about like the first three pages, literally the point, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. You have in fact correctly described the story and what it was trying I, to do. Thank you. A key part of the drama is he has no even you know picture of himself. There's no mirrors. There's no opportunity for, you know, a view of the outside world. So, Man, another entertaining world. installment of people on the internet. Um, I also really like, and and I wonder if this is going to be a recurring theme of the, it wanted to be a Black Mirror episode, but it failed. Yeah. As a, you know, anytime there's slightly dark sci-fi or maybe just sci-fi in general. Like, I, like I, I wonder if that's going to be the touchstone of, I had to put more effort in than watching a TV show. Mm-hmm. And so... It didn't succeed. It's, it's to the credit of Black Mirror that it's kind of become the generic, it reminded me of a Twilight Zone kind of response to these stories. But mm-hmm. ultimately, I find like 70 to 80% of Black Mirror episodes failed me, so I don't really know what it says. <laughs> Fair enough. So if it, if it failed as a failure, is that a success? Depends what it was going for. Uh, in, ter- in terms of also foul language, the only one I was able to find quickly is at the ver- almost the very end of when... The, t- the two characters are talking about have, how, how many of others have been through this with you or how many others said yes main research has been not a one not a single fucking one of you that's the only curse i really find and i feel like that one's kind of earned it's, that's a yeah that's appropriate yeah how mm-hmm. bizarre Ugh. and also if, if you're saying you know it ru- the once i reach the foul language it ruined it for me is that we're on the second page before the end <laughs> at that i hope they stop reading like i don't i don't care to continue <laughs> Sure, inertia would normally carry me, but I'm done. I'm going to actively paddle out of this river. <laughs> but in terms of initial responses from you guys, I'm kind of curious. What did you think? So, um, I would say that I did not really expect something that felt a little bit more in the horror uh, side of mm-hmm. things, um, and I don't think this one suffered as much from a reread for me um, as some of the other ones did. Um, and I, like, I thought it was sort of an enjoyable, you know, thought exercise on, um, sort of what happens when you end up in the situation where, uh, that, that we'll get into, but sort of briefly is a, uh, presumably cloning experiment of some sort for, for a variety of reasons. And, and you're, you know, sort of dealing with, uh, somebody getting their mind back and, and sort of what that means and, and you know where where does their choice of agency sort of end up with the possibility of multiple copies mm-hmm. it's also an interesting and i know we'll talk about this more but it's a d- interesting and particularly kind of um applicable thought exercise on like what is it appropriate to do if you are the last one left mm-hmm. right um and so that's kind of interesting to me i will say i like the story okay i do think I did find it legitimately creepy. Like, I think that the kind of ambiance of the story was um, kind of in that horror genre for me. And just like, there was just a narrow enough field of view that I felt like deeply uncomfortable while reading Mm -hmm. the story, which I thought was super successful. for me, and I do, this is a little bit of a, a chicken and egg situation or some other cliche about it, but I, it did 
drag for me in a bunch of different places. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I understand that to develop the narrative you need to have to get to the ending that you're getting to, like it has to be this kind of more prolonged process. I just, there were a bunch of places where I was like, I'm not, I'm not in, interested in this. Yeah. And uh, I think that there are parts of the structure and how it's done that probably could have been shortened a little bit, but I think that there are ways to um, do monotonous like storytelling that aren't monotonous in the mm-hmm. in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and like there's some, but it's a hard thing to balance when you really sort of need that, you know, you're banging your head up against the wall or, you know, it's some sort of semi-Sisyphean task yeah. and you want to sort of just have the reader understand the futility or, you know, the the effort that's going into something mundane. Mm-hmm. What about you, Spencer? It's It was interesting for me to see where all the Amazon reviews fell, and just in terms of distribution <laughs> between various numbers, of where, like we were talking about for You Brought Your Destination last time, it was pretty much an even run whether you found it a five or a one. Mm-hmm. It was evenly scattered between. This seemed like the bulk of everybody found it a three or a four or a five, up in that range. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of up there too. It's like to me, I thought it was successful. I thought it was, it had fewer obvious flaws or fewer obvious mistakes in terms of how it was built and how it was structured. It had effective build of tension. I kind of appreciated the slow pace build that it was going for. Um, I don't know whether it was intentionally trying to come across as mechanical as it does for the first few chapters for me, of where I felt a lot more tension than I, than I ever really felt through our narrator. Hmm. Our narrator, I was almost stubbornly viewing as a machine that was learning how to be human or being, you know, coded to be human rather than what he ultimately ended up being because I never got much in the way of emotion from him. Um, that may be intentional, just based on how this is a character that's trying to learn everything about life in very short order and having a lot of it just forced in and upon him. Um, I ultimately felt a lot more for the other character in the story, the Doctor Anne. Yeah. The sense of tragedy and loneliness that wraps up her character, that res- resonated with me quite a bit, as it turned out. Um, so I, I thought it was good. I don't have as many strong views when it comes to this <laughs> one, because I think it, it successfully did what it wanted to do, and that is an achievement. Mm-hmm. It didn't necessarily emotionally resonate with me the best, but... and I. If, if this was in any way indi- in, indeed intended to be a surprise reveal or just to, a shocking twist here at the end, it's an abject failure, but I don't think it was in this way that some readers seem to think think that uh, it needed to be. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think people that are going or expecting twists see them everywhere. Um, and I don't know, it's, it's sort of a, if you want a twist to be there, it can be there and it's mediocre. Mm. But I, you know, I think that this story, like, if you were expecting a twist in this story, then the story, regardless of whether you thought the reveal was successful or not, the first ninety percent of the story only works if you are expecting what's coming. Yeah. So if you were blind to what was going to happen, yeah, like it, it's a weird that you weren't going to get the story either. No. Yeah, and as we've kind of discussed before, a story that's just built around a twist, I find kind of trite anyway. Mm-hmm. It's part of the reason M. Night Shyamalan has kind of fallen from grace is that if it's if the twist is all there is, you don't really have much of a story. Um, but for the, this is much more about the individual experience. We are very much meant to be in the mindset, in the situation of a guy who is waking up in a locked room with no concept of reality beyond literally experiencing it for the first time. 
And that's meant to be the build that we have with him as we go to learning a life. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, this sort of, um, I think it is like a somewhat interesting departure from their sort of the cliche of the main character, like waking up, not knowing who they are, mm-hmm. where they are, and then sort of interacting with the world. Um, but that's com- like there for like uh, a page and a half. Um, and so sort of, well, let's get into the plot of the book where we have um, our main character who we don't ever get a name. Uh, um, it's interesting too. It's not only that we don't get a name, we literally get a blank in the page. Mm-hmm. Or yeah. as said in the audio recording, X. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, which the, um, this audio was actually provided by, I think it was Stephen Weir. Which Have you guys ever watched The Expanse? Nope. No, I haven't. Worth watching. Hmm. It's, uh, it's, it's good sci-fi and he does well with the role. And for this... And, uh, we can talk about his narration by the time we get to the end, but I, th- I think it was fine. Not, I wasn't quite as impressed with it as some of the other ones we've done, but it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and and we basically slowly get the main character coming back to life, like learning, sort of learning how to do things, having a knowledge or some sort of uh, memory of a past, um, but it isn't clear, and he's interacting with a researcher that is basically getting him to... Um, you know, sort of do what they did in the Matrix. You know, you your eyes are weak because you've never used them before, so your muscles, mm-hmm. so sort of everything else, um, including your mind and your memory. Yeah. And I think it's worth pointing out in these um, interactions with this researcher, you know, uh, we talked in the reviews a little bit about kind of the narration of this story in the writing itself. But it is worth pointing out that this the whole story is told either through dialogue between X and the researcher or... X's thoughts as he's trying to figure out what's going on around him. Um, well, and in second person. Yeah, our thoughts, practically. Yes. Yeah. So it's your thoughts, you are X. Yes. Um, let's, make, let's, let's put a pen in, debate, in, in debating that choice of second person and also the idea of the name being absent. And we can debate why that was done and whether it was successful here at the end. But as I said, this is a character that has seemingly very limited concept of even you know what the experience of the world is. And what memories they have, it's almost more that he remembers remembering or remembers just vague concepts, mm-hmm. but none of them are really connected here to start. He- um, yeah, I mean, sort of like vague memories of, you know, sort of childhood, some something with adulthood, and more sort of blips. Right. Uh, very su- uh, sequential, or not like quite sequential, but like episodic. There we mm-hmm. go. Episodic memories. So there's like something that happened... Um, and remembers like a house and a tree and like something across from there and they were doing something, but not like a, like I know where this fits in my life. Mm-hmm. Like at one point, uh, or pretty early on, early on, the researcher asks him, what things do you, and what he comes back with is, I remember pennies have a distinct smell, but I don't remember what the smell, I don't remember the smell. Mm-hmm. I remember rain and I remember living in a small brown house with a tree in the front yard. And that little small brown house becomes one of the touchstones by which his memory works throughout all of this. Yeah, and we get a lot more of, uh, like, there are a lot of things that I remember. It's such an opening question, like, I don't know what to say. Mm-hmm. And we get a lot of that. And then we also get some, like, early, um, or relatively early on, some, like, deficits in in X's behavior, where he does a free association. Mm-hmm. And with the free association, it's birds, and he basically just gives the, you know, probably wikipedia first couple of sentences or you know what you find in miriam webster with a definition rather than 
something associated with Barkus. Mm-hmm. He's a wealth of information and a utter gap and void of experience. In terms of, I mean, one thing we also have is we, we don't even really realize at the beginning of the story just how limited his experience, if it, just the immediate world around him, is. We know he wakes up in a room, but we don't really know much more about that until over time we realize this is a perfectly dark room in which he does not have eyes, or at least is not able to see through them mm-hmm. at the start of the story. Mm-hmm. His only real interaction with something he imagines might be outside is a researcher speaking to him through what I assume is like a um, overhead speaker. Right. And we basically have nothing other than the bed that he sleeps in until a little bit later when things sort of appear while he's sleeping. He doesn't seem to have necessarily even control over when he sleeps. When the researcher's done, his experience of the world kind of just stops until the next time he wakes up. Mm -hmm. And he is being fed in addition to these kind of Um, conversations that he has with the researcher it is also clear that he is being fed just a whole bunch of different like types of media and those change as the story goes on but it's interesting that at the beginning of the story it becomes clear that like what he really likes are nature and ocean sounds which is not as necessarily what the researcher wants him to focus no she seems a little put out um with his continued requests for those same recordings Mm -hmm. notably also um each of our chapters is just numbered, but they're not, we're not seeing all of them. Yes. That our, our first chapter is one, and then we jump to like five, and then seven, and we sometimes skip as many as several different ones between, but these are clearly, in my mind, meant to be log entries mm-hmm. of each day of right. experience. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least each interaction, because it's sort of really unclear if it's a day by day or yeah. you know when he's awake or anything like that because you know we don't we have no outside influence um until a lot later right mm-hmm. and already we get a certain sense of unease but it continues to build as we go through particularly once we hit i think it's chapter like nine of when the treadmill has suddenly appeared he's going to you mm-hmm. know exercise for the first time because electric stimulation of his muscles are doing enough and he just kind of jokingly, because he has all this information in his head, no real you know understanding of it, just says, "Oh, treadmills that those were originally used to you know torture prisoners," and just points that out to the researcher, and she does not find it funny. No. Where um, he go ahead, Spencer. He, he, he very intentionally, almost mechanically, because he's still experiencing you know everything. You know, he indicates that he's joking with laughter, but she doesn't laugh back and just says simply, "You are not a prisoner," and that gives him the first feelings of unease of where, huh. That was not the response I expected to that. Right. Like, why are you telling me I'm not a prisoner when I can't leave? And so he starts asking why he can't leave, what's out there, you know, what's going on in the rest of the world. And he's usually met, he's essentially met with, I'll tell you when you're Mm -hmm. ready. A series of stonewalling that slowly starts to, you know, circle around. Your immune system is too weak. You might be under threat of you, which... He has no frame of reference to know whether he's being lied to or not, but starts to distrust her in a way he hadn't previously. Mm-hmm. Um, it becomes more apparent over time that, Sarah, like you said, he want, what he wants is the generic experience of the world, the outside. But what the researcher wants to ingrain in him is his own past. I say own with giant quotation marks. <laughs> yeah. Um, but a, a history of his life, where he was born, who his family were, what the experiences that he had as a child were. Mm-hmm. None of which he knows, really. He's got vague inklings, he has vague memories, but most of those only really seem to develop after the researcher tells them that, the, that these were his memories and what happened to him. And also things that he liked to do. So, you know, physical work with his hands, 
Um, I mean, we fairly early on sort of get building projects, sort of more minor ones. Um, and, you know, some of it is sort of couched in like getting like your fine motor skills back, but some of it is definitely like this is stuff that you like to do. Right. Yeah. And, and things that you were facile with. Before. And what's interesting, too, is that interspersed in um, this kind of reclamation or reinculculation into these very specific memories is we do get little inklings of the researcher's response to this information as well, yeah. right? Sometimes her fourth wall kind of breaks um, mm-hmm. yeah, and the barriers she that she has put up. She starts at very cold clinical, mm-hmm. very, very mechanical. But like you said, we get inklings over time. One of the big ones in my mind is one of the first times he ever gets his, first time he ever sees again. He starts to you know, explore the use of his eyes. Uh, the researcher laughs, like, I see that you can see, and comments that, uh, but now you were aiming your wide, beautiful eyes around. Mm-hmm. That's a level of personal involvement with you know the patient of the lab animal or whatever the situation is right here that... Um, it's interesting. It implies a certain degree of history that he starts to realize as he's talking with her. Yeah. And she starts to specifically react to some of the like media that he is being fed to. I mean, she starts crying at certain songs, um, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, which sparks some very odd conversations. Yes. And it only builds over time. By the end, we, the main memories that he's being given are of her own experience. Yes. Her own history. And by that point, you're almost wondering who's more the patient here because we get much more of a response out of her than we ever do out of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so as we sort of progress with him regaining his faculties in a variety of ways, um, he's sort of eventually allowed to meet the researcher and go outside and then gets to go to the little house with the tree that needs work. I think before we talk about the little house with the tree that needs work, um, mm-hmm. the process of walking through the laboratory building that he is in and the conversations that he has with the researcher at that point and what he starts to think are, like, for me, who is not, like, a fan of horror and does not, like, really deal with oh, that yeah. genre, really. But that was, like, a particularly affecting moment for me because it was creepy. Oh, this kind of abandoned landscape yeah. that they're strolling through? Particularly yeah. right. after... Um, I, well, I can't remember because there are a lot, a lot of conversations where X is asking about, like, are there other people here? Um, mm-hmm. You know, where where even are we? What is the conversation? And I can't remember what the researcher answers. Well, and she conti- By this point, she's answering him honestly enough, but not providing much in the way of detail mm-hmm. of where she's saying that yeah. there were, but they left once the pandemic started. I see. Well, or, there were, but they left when they all started to get sick. Okay. Right. This is where it was, but we're not there there anymore. That's far away. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, correct answers, but really not giving up a lot of information on what's around right now, why we're here, mm-hmm. like, what what the, you know, if you ask somebody where they are and they say, well, somewhere in the Milky Way, it's like, okay, yes, but like, <laughs> yeah, thank you, it's clearly not what the question was. <laughs> right. Uh, and so in this hallway, in this laboratory, as they go through, um, everything is coated in a thick layer of dust, but there still are footprints, um, yeah. some mm-hmm. of which seem relatively recent, not all of which are the same size. Mm-hmm. Yep. And one of the things we, all, we also get when we first start the scene is the previous memories that he's been given, the memories we've seen the researcher react to, all seem to stop at a certain age 
mm-hmm. of where it's all when she's a relatively young and part of mm-hmm. seemingly what she's experiencing with our protagonist, the, the life that they've enjoyed together, the happy moments they had as a couple. And then before she meets him, she feels the need to warn him that, okay, you've got the memories now, but I'm not going to be what you remember. And we clearly see that there has been a vast passage in time between when the memories stopped and what the present is. Mm-hmm. Of where she is now, if not an old woman, decidedly older. Um, still dressed purposely, dressed the same as the last memory. But as they walk through this landscape, as you said, there's dust covering everything. All the other researchers have left. There's a vast series of labs that are just no longer even accessible. But all mm-hmm. of, it all appears to be running even though the world itself has stopped. Mm-hmm. And she even credits, yeah. you know, you and the mechanical team wonders with wind and the solar to keep all of this going now seemingly forever, even though there's no one else left to maintain it. And she's sort of older and grayer and more wrinkled and... And, you know, a little bit less fat around the edges than he sort of expected from the memories that he has. Mm-hmm. His first response to it is to cry when he sees her. Uh, and he then tries to spin it into a joke and they both laugh it off. But there's a certain element of tragedy that he experiences then of where his last memory and now is if he's waking from a coma, 30 years have passed and this is your loved one, or at least the person that you've been taught to. Mm-hmm. Um, they wander through. So would you say that uh, she's been mentoring him through this process? Very, very, very much. <laughs> In the negative sense of the mm-hmm. word. Uh, let's, let's talk about implanted memory here in a bit. But they go through and they meet and they arrive at, again, what is just a collection of Sisyphean tasks that she's you know, built her life around, of where she has, brick by brick, with help, rebuilt the brown house. Not the original, it's a replica, but, you know... That's good enough for the best that you can do. Yeah, just in like the middle of this laboratory compound, I, I'm imagining like a little brick house in like the middle of Research Triangle Park at this point. And, like, yeah, pretty much. What are we doing here? Yeah, what used to be a green mm-hmm. space is now our lawn. Yeah, they, they, they do a kind of a little short walk, and it's made longer by the fact that our main character is sick. Yes. And he doesn't know why. He's been told enough that there was a pandemic and that you are kind of ill, and we find out here in this section, well, what's going to happen to me? Well, you'll either die or you'll get better. And that's kind of all that he's really told about this, other than that he is seemingly getting worse and worse by the day, to the point that he's even nervous to meet her because he's, like, afraid that she might get sick, but that appears to not not at all be in the cards. But yeah. They, they, arri- they arrive at the house, and there's a feeling of, like, inevitability of where she's leading him to the house because something has to happen. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. And from his perspective, all he really feels up to doing is crawling into bed and just feeling the worst he's ever felt in his life, quite literally. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, he's getting worse. He's getting sick. She tries to take him through, you know, what appears to be a very set kind of day of experience, but he's no longer really physically able to do it. The the skills that have been implanted in him, you know, she tries to wield him to complete the fence so that the house will finally be complete. Mm -hmm. Not up to code at all, but (laughs) complete. (laughs) Um, but he can barely even do it. She has to do most of the work, and after that, she gives him a dinner that he can barely even consume because his tongue is swollen up at this point, and then he goes to bed. And the next morning, she wakes him up with this day. This is going to be the most important day. This is going to be the most important thing. I know you don't feel great. This is what we've been leading up Mm -hmm. to for the entire book. This is the moment I need you to soldier through, even though I know you don't feel up to it, but I need you to come downstairs, and then I need you to play along with it. Use your memories... Don't ask me any questions. Assume a role and go with me here. And I won't second-guess you. I won't break the flow, so long as you don't. But I need you to do this. And though he's, you know, it's, his feelings for her are a jumbled mess of complexity, 
she agrees to go along with it because of this kind of latent caring that's in it's in her and she leaves and she changes and she comes back wearing a completely different outfit than she was before but one that triggers a memory of a kind of past experience associated with it and they proceed to go into what appears to be a dialogue that has been well was first that first occurred maybe 20 30 years in the past mm-hmm. yep a well-trod very well-trod yeah of where it is her talking with him in a very similar situation of where he is dying, that she wants to bring him back to the lab so that he can get you know medical treatment, but in the event that it doesn't work, she needs him to agree to something. Yeah. And yeah. He's trying his darndest to keep up with this conversation, and at the times it even seems to flow naturally because there hits some very familiar rhythms for him. Um, but the end result is he doesn't really want to go to the lab, but is willing to to help her, but. He wants her to admit what exactly it is that she wants him to agree to. And it is finally confirmed for us that she wants him to agree for her to clone him. Because apparently the main purposes of this lab previously was cloning technology. And in a way that also seems to maybe possibly have a connection to the pandemic in a way that even she is kind of uncertain about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, And I mean, the end result is that he says no. Again, she, yep. which is the key point. Yeah, and she doesn't. She doesn't at any point seem surprised, disappointed, yes, angry. But it's her reaction is not shocked and appalled enough that he has to ask her, "How many of us have gone through this? Too many. Mm-hmm. How many have said and, yes? Not a one. Not a fucking one of you." Yeah. Yep. And this is sort of where it got. It was sort of an ending that I liked to this because it didn't feel like it needed to explain the whole world Mm -hmm. and the rest of the world doesn't matter it it would have been it would have been dishonest if we suddenly zoomed out to a different perspective at this point or if he gained any knowledge beyond just simply what he has seen through his own seen through his own eyes or felt of the world or had forced upon him no actually what i really liked about this sorry spencer but what i really liked about the kind of narrowness of the scope of this story is that while reading and listening to it i could slot it in to any number of apocalyptic worlds that I've encountered in other stories, and it fits just fine. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if, if anything, in the end, our, as much as we want to say our main character was the main character, he was always just kind of a void. Mm-hmm. He was always just something that was being placed upon. Our main character is the researcher. Absolutely. What she has gone through and what she has tried to do to make that work. Mm-hmm. Of where, yeah. From one perspective, she's had a rather... Well, just finish off her narrative. The narrative, he... he does she euthanize him here, or does she just give him a hell of a lot of painkillers, or both? Because I mean, she replaces the IV, and he has a very different sensation for his last feeling in the world. I mean, yeah. he's been in a really bad situation before in terms of health, so I feel like, meh. Just a little faster, maybe. Yeah. Just a little yeah. faster. Probably a bit of painkillers rather than saline, yeah. rather than saline at least, and that may be enough to off him. But then our next chapter is suddenly labeled zero one again, and it is the exact opening paragraphs by which the book, the short story starts. And X does yeah. at some point see her going to fetch something else on a stretcher. Uh, the, right. Yeah, she's pushing a gurney yeah. through the street, or, through, a gurney, through yeah. this complex, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the moment before all that he's written. We've seen some tension before him, but he's almost so unfamiliar with emotion, we don't necessarily get that much in the level of fear, or anger, or confusion. The moment he sees the gurney sends him on a spiral of yep. where yeah. he suddenly has his first nightmare. Hasn't had any of those before that we've heard about. Isn't this also he... kind of the same series where he sees himself in the mirror? That's the nightmare, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that well, was in maybe, a nightmare? Maybe, okay. 
Well, uh, the researcher says it was a nightmare. I thought that was a real thing happening no... in the world. <laughs> the researcher yeah. says there is no mirror in the bathroom. You can look at it in the morning. There'll be no ma- there'll be no mirror there. Yeah, there's not now. Um, yep. But it clearly sends him to a spiral of you know the final identity crisis that he's already been struggling. But we end this with where we began of seemingly a new clone is now being prepped and maybe this one will work. Mm-hmm. Maybe this yep. one will survive. Maybe this one will embrace the memories and do exactly what she wants them to be but it seems that for our researcher while in some ways she's enjoying a relatively cozy apocalypse it is a decisively lonely one yeah then we also get the the line that i find very interesting which is there aren't very many of you left to say yes yeah at the end when she's uh ushering this one on to uh the no pile and a very ambiguous line that even comes after that too but doesn't she say something along the lines of i never lied to you right mm-hmm. what what do you think she was speaking to there yeah that's because it, um. it's unclear if she's speaking to sort of x in his current manifestation or if she's speaking to her husband yeah right well that and also um i think she's responding to the you know i want you to say yes if i can clone you but if you say no i won't yeah. and so it's not technically a lie if there are already clones, but it means that she can't continue the stock. Yeah. I was, in my mind, I was kind of breaking it down into two different ways of whether it was A, I was never going to lie to you at all throughout all of this experiment. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. everything I was telling you was accurate, which largely speaking was true. That is, that is true, yeah. Uh, but point number two, and this you know, adds a certain element of self-defeating tragedy here is that, you know, his old point behind, I don't want to agree to this is it wouldn't be me. Mm-hmm. It would always be a clone. They would always be just forced in implanted memories. I don't care how good the tech is. It would never be me. Mm-hmm. And I almost wondered to a certain degree, whether this is her acceptance of that, of where literally speaking, she did not lie to him because whoever's being brought <laughs> back next is not him. It wouldn't be him. It would never be him. And maybe she, and you know, as much as she's fighting against that, she kind of maybe accepts that. But at the same time, I mean, clearly, well, I think, and this is the, uh, never mind, I will phrase this as a question. What do you think then her drive, what do you think her main drive for continuing to try to implant these memories in clones and recreate her husband actually is? At this point, it almost feels like it's just become rote, that she just has nothing left to do with herself in the world, that she's spent 30 or 40 years now where there is no one else. As much as she knows there are probably other living people out there, she saw other researchers that didn't seem to be getting sick leave. She has not seen them in possibly decades. And Mm -hmm. so this almost feels just almost purposely Sisyphean of where she has nothing else but to to roll the boulder up the hill, even though she inevitably knows it's going to fail, just because... What else does she have to do with herself? So would you consider her a Omega Woman? To work the Charlton Heston movie? Sure, yeah. We can do that reference. <laughs> um, and because this does, to a large extent, have sort of that, some of the feel of certain versions of I Am Legend. Right. The kind of Robertson Crusoe narrative of guy alone in the world, what the hell do you do with yourself? Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's no volleyball to entertain you, so... <laughs> Cast away, sure. <laughs> Could just name this guy Wilson instead of X. Um, but so do you, do you, is that your sort of understanding of why she's doing this then as well, BJ? Um, I think that there are a couple of things behind this. Um, I think that there's a little bit more of the, um, I'm hoping to clone my husband or partner or whatever in a way that he won't fall victim to the plague. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
hopefully one of them survives and I never have to have the conversation of can I clone you? Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of rolled into the... Um, I think that sort of maybe was an initial outset of like what they were trying to do, but now it's gone down to like she lost somebody important to her and is emotionally broken. And sort of that's what it has evolved into now. Yeah. I don't, I don't think she has a concept of reality where she doesn't do this. She's kind of, everything that she has is just invested in this process, whether she, you know, logically knows it's going to ever succeed or not. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, sir? I think there are, t- there are two things for me. One is that I think what I got particularly on kind of a second reading is that first, and I, these are kind of, um, I'm going to talk about these in kind of backwards order because I think that this the one I'm going to talk about first has become increasingly important to her as time has gone on, um, mm-hmm. which is that because she is so alone, her memories and her own story of herself have no meaning if she cannot have like sure. an, a dialogue with someone if there is no one else to see those then they don't mean anything mm-hmm. to her either and so it's this kind of outward facing like i have to have an audience for this which is so interesting in the narrative structure of the kind of dialogue between x and the researcher but i and it also i think folds into uh it being a second person narrative mm-hmm. yes and is in, to my mind the reason, and we talked about this a little bit in the recap, but to my mind it's the reason that by the end of X's training, we're only looking at the researcher's memories. He's only being exposed to her sort of past so that she can re-experience those, is my, my interpretation of that. Mm-hmm. But It's interesting. Go ahead. Oh, it's interesting, too, how painful that is for her. Yes. Of where... Well, well, they go through the initial part of her childhood, and she, you know, makes it through it. But about halfway through, she just kind of says, she says something along the lines of "fuck this," and just kind of accelerates through it to the very end. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. who knows how many times she's had to watch this—these kind of memories that only she really has anymore—while she's trying to meet somebody to make them as meaningful for him as they are for her. And we arrive at the last one that she's willing that. She arrives at it and she like rewatches it like three times there yeah. in front of him to the point that he can repeat the lines there with her. Yes. And it's very pointedly the last, like one of the last pleasant memories that probably the two of them shared of where like they bought the brown house together. Yes. And that's in my mind strongly implied to be like, this was like a week before everything went to it, Yeah, and it might've been a week. It might've been years, who knows, but it it is very present in right. the memory. Yeah. It informs just how important the brown house has become to yeah. her and how much she wants him to, you know, share with her how important the brown house is. Mm-hmm. And so, so those... You, you, oh, go ahead. You know, can you just imagine the task it would be for her to disassemble and rebuild the brown oh house in the compound without any prior training? Even with, you know, <laughs> alive for a day assistance to help her throughout this process? But I guess if you have 30 years, then okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it does, you know, those those last kind of memory sessions particularly for her, become this sort of self-flagellation, which is directly related to what I think, like for me, is her like real motive in continuing to do this and not leaving the lab and going somewhere else and trying to find somebody else to, you know, sort of trundle along with in this post-apocalyptic narrative is she needs absolution. Mm. Yeah. She needs forgiveness. And she keeps having this conversation, to, even though she knows she's never going to get it, she keeps trying to have this conversation to get somebody to say that, yes, what you have been doing for 30 years is okay. 
um, and nobody will do it. But she has to like continue. I mean, she is like suffering from PTSD at this point. She has to continue mm-hmm. to go through these repetitions with no hope of change. What, yeah. Otherwise, what what does that say of what she's chosen to do for bad? Mm-hmm. Maybe at this point, the vast majority of her life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, I guess the more I think about it, the more it's unclear to me. Is did the original say yes? I think. And no. none of the copies have because they're not the original. I don't think so because she wouldn't have to continue to have this conversation if the original had said yes. So, but I guess it's. If the goal initially was, you know, can I clone you so we can try and survive this pandemic or whatever happened, you know, this apocalypse mm-hmm. together. Um, and then, like, after he got revived in this clone, was just like, wait a minute, this isn't me, and all I'm doing is dying. And then she basically spends 30 years killing her husband again and again and again, and then wants them to say yes again. Because otherwise she lied to him the first time. It's one of those things where it really depends how you interpret the line, none of you, not a single fucking one of you, of when he asked how many of us it is. When she's using the word you, is she purposely saying right. the clones, mm-hmm. or is she saying the entirety of them? Right. I, and, you know, I've never lied to you, is that, what does that mean? The same you or a different you. Right. I interpreted it to mean neither the original nor a single copy since has ever said yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it very well could be interpreted that this is just a final proof that the cloning process in the implanting memories is ultimately a failure. If the first one did indeed say yes, but a, not a single one of them since has, then even on their deathbed, it's just a further demonstration that she's never really fully encapsulating her husband. Yeah. But I, yeah. I'm kind of defaulting towards the first one. Yeah, because I also, I just go back to the idea of like, there is there is no reason to focus so much on this. Like he is being trained to have this conversation. All of these yeah, clones are right. being trained to have this conversation. And there's no reason for that to happen if she was given permission the first time around. In the first, yeah. There's, there's an off chance that maybe this one might survive. But it's like you said, Sarah, maybe the ultimate purpose here is the absolution. Mm-hmm. That, and mm-hmm. I guess the, the only reason that I think that, that the other could be a possibility is it seems like the time is narrowing. That's true. Because there's a, you know... It seems to me like a lot of the house was built Mm -hmm. and to do it in like half day chunks or or whatever like he ends up getting, like it it feels like this is a narrowing process as time goes on. Like these, the bodies themselves are like just continue to degrade faster. To deteriorate. Exactly. And I think we get some hints of that in the text too. Yeah. Where it's, every now and then she actually criticizes him or comments to him that you're not doing as well as you should be. That you're right. not yeah, advancing as yeah. well as you should be. And that's no fault of your own, but I need you to do better. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to me, that sort of is a somewhat of an indication of like how much she expects out of these clones and how much she's getting. And so it might have been like, you know, the first one was around for five years and, and they're like, oh, you know, let's, you know, recreate the house and, and continue the work that's going on. And, and now it's getting like worse and worse because she's reviving her husband, basically, or partner, whatever, so many times for less and less. And so it's it's much more, as we've gotten to this point, a, you know, are you okay with doing this again? But everybody's getting less out of it now. Mm-hmm. And so instead of having some time to spend together and, and do whatever it is they were doing before, now it's just a up, have the conversation die. And so when it might have started out as 
a like we'll spend some time together and maybe you'll change your mind kind of thing now it's just this self-flagellation mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting i'm kind of debating in my mind which one of those is more tragic of where is i hate both of them <laughs> <laughs> both both suck in their own ways and clearly there is a finite end date on this based on what she's saying here at the end mm-hmm. there aren't very mm-hmm. many of you left to say yes and she's getting increasingly more frantic um and fragile and fragile yes yeah. so as said, the ultimate tragedy of the story and the ultimate, for my mind, emotional feeling I get is for the researcher, of where I cannot imagine the that she has endured to try to make this happen. To try so to... you don't think that she's an awful person? I think she's a desperate person. I think she is a person that is, you know, flirting with madness, if not fully in it, based on the experiences that she's been, you know, forced into and has no other, no other alternative for. I think she's a person that is desperately grasping at straws because in her mind and from the choices she's already made, she has no other choice. There is nothing else to the world. I also wonder, especially given where she is in her life and in this process now, I wonder a little bit if, like, she made this decision the first time around after her husband died to clone him against his wishes. If, if we are, you know, mm-hmm. if we accept that um, he said no the first time around. Um, mm-hmm. And that she recognized because, as he said in the conversation, because he was never going to be himself, that she recognized that that was a mistake in the early going of this process, but couldn't Mm -hmm. stop because she had, then she had, she really had to get forgiveness. Like, if the cloning had gone right in the first place, Mm -hmm. then his concerns would have been a little moot, right? Um, if it really could have been him in some way, shape, or form that was coming through. But now she's trying for this absolution because she got it wrong. Because she found out that she did the wrong thing the first time around. Yeah. I mean, I could see that too. I I think that's sort of the the nice part about some of these stories where there's a lot of interesting things to be thought about that could all be there and they don't, none of the things really detract from the story. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, we've talked often about what makes it for a successful short story. We've often talked about you know, having a narrow focus, knowing what you want to accomplish. But we've also suggested, too, that being willing to be incomplete, and this one is an incomplete story, but it works in some ways, because there are purposeful gaps, and yes. there's realm to explore mm-hmm. around them. That it's not, the fact that it does not tell us everything is intentional and works for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the big con. I mean, each of these stories has had the scientific concept, that is, to the degree that it informs the whole story or is just background, For better or worse, a lot. sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ones we get here are essentially cloning and memory implantation. Mm-hmm. Those, yep. are the, those are the kind of the big concepts. Mm-hmm. And for me, the cloning is, you know, whatever. Sure. The memory implantation, though, I find a really interesting concept of where the way she describes it is as if it is, she describes it here at the end as if we are genetically instilling the memories in you. As mm-hmm. if, you know, it's going to be you because the memories are in, you know, baked into your DNA. They're baked into your cells. It's going to be you that's brought back. But then the entire story says that's really not kind of true. Yeah. That, that might be the idea, but those memories, but I guess, if, even if they are sort of there, they have to be trained. Right. Yeah. Is that you, you, we can start you with all the information and knowledge in the world, which it seems to be what they're actually doing, but we can't mm-hmm. tell you what's important. Right. Yeah. We can tell... I can, te- I can, you know, explain to you what a bird is, but I can't really... I can't just instill it in your code the feeling that you had when you saw an eager's time. Right. That I'm going to I mean, try to explain give you, to you. 
We can send you all of the URLs of the Wikipedia pages in the Spencer Spiral. <laughs> yes. But unless you do it the right way, it isn't really a Spencer Spiral. <laughs> Absolutely not. And she, you know, this is this is the Spencer trying to explain to the Spencer how to go through the spiral, and the only way it can work is by coaching. And it still never really works. Even yeah. if, even as she tries to teach him each element of his quote unquote his past. It's always still artificial. The only things that are really real to him are the experiences that he has now, mm -hmm. the desires that he has now, the things he wants to do now. Everything else about what, you know, should be important to him is just still, you know, some kind of super ego imposed on top rather than actually what he is. And so it never fully works, even if he, by the end of the story, cares enough to try to fake it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And part of, you know, part of what's interesting about this whole process, too, is the sort of both the story's attention to and the kind of plan of this genetic project's dismissal of, like, the difference between what the mind experiences and what the body experiences. And he yeah. doesn't have any of those body-based memories um, that, like, are so crucial to mm -hmm. having an embedded experience of the world. To return to that mention of, like, uh, the pennies. Mm -hmm. where the fact that he knows mm -hmm. that pennies have a smell but doesn't have any concept of what that smell is is a we it's a weird early statement that this is not a fully human experience because right. like the smells the sensations the feelings are what we remember best remember how unique those are i can still conjure certain smells in my mind if i think about them for a bit the fact that he only analytically has those just really tells you how artificial this, this is in some ways it's a really bizarre indictment on storytelling yeah. Yeah, it is. Because all of these all these memories are at this point is narrative based. Like they're they're just stories. Um and that's clearly right. not and enough. They're not. You know, right. They're not evocative mm -hmm. in the way that they should. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and they're only really evocative for the person who actually lived them. Yeah, and they like, they work for our researcher. And, and <laughs> so many of the stories beforehand were so clinical, were so just, you know, information. It really again reminded me of you trying to teach a computer how to love kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But that <laughs> One moment of when she's there watching with him, in a way we haven't been as clear before, and she starts to cry, she starts to curse, she starts to fast forward through because it's too painful to go through. Suddenly the memories are real and painful and emotive in a way they've never been for him. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, one, uh, it's an interesting tie-back comparison, but given how much this is almost like gaslighting, how much of this is just you know trying to force a different view of reality upon the character. What color of wallpaper do you think? Yeah, I know. The, question. <laughs> the fact that it's a yellow wallpaper room was great for me because it was a direct story comparison. Yep. Yep. I also liked the uh, looking out the window to see the sort of other body being transported. Also very yellow wallpaper. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it is interesting, too, that there is a certain element of success in her part, but it's in ways that are incidental to what she actually wanted. Yeah. Right. Of where the experience of the ocean is an important one for of where he's been longing for that, he's been hoping for that, and she and then he finally has that when he goes out into the world. But it is something that this clone himself has developed rather than something that was necessarily, you know, a tide through the prior memory that's been mm -hmm. um one interesting thing I was kinda of curious about, I've read versions of this story that have been or, you know, the classic Robinson Crusoe, Mega Man, Last Man on Earth kind of narrative. They're always told from the perspective of the guy the guy who's experiencing the last, being the last man on earth. I've never read it as much from the volleyball, which effectively this guy is. <laughs> uh, yeah. would, would this story have worked as well if it was told from the research perspective, or do you think it is more, it is more successful being told from the perspective of the volleyball? I mean, it's a completely different story. Yeah. Um, so 
it's it's hard to say like if it's a success or not um based on it it needing to be a very 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 different story um but i guess in comparison i think that um omega man or or i am legend sure uh, whichever version we want to deal with like the the that story needs a twist or it's a very boring story um and like it's it's sort of an interesting story for like two-thirds of the story and then like it's kind of exploring the world but like if it just sort of ends there it'd be um just sort of a narrative about the the post-apocalypse and and what zombies are and so like without something to happen like escaping the zombies or whatever else like you need something else whereas from the volleyball point of view like you get a very different perspective and that can be the story and so if that's what you want it the story to be i think that it necessitates this uh this style and i think it also does like a really because we have spent so much time talking about the researcher herself and what her experiences are it's interesting that choosing this kind of flipped narrative um Mm -hmm. allows you to not only like really tap into what is going on with her i think in a pretty successful way um if somewhat opaque but also to get at the same time this consideration of like what does it mean to rediscover that you have a body in the world? Like, what does it yeah. mean to... So yes. to be able to do that, you can't do both of those narratives from the other direction. Um, yeah. But you can do them both in this structure. Right. And BJ, like you said, a lot of these narratives fall into two different categories of whether they're either an endurance or madness tale, if we're just experiencing mm. the rote day-to-day and the repetition, or they've got the kind of twist of where there was a limited understanding of the world, and now he's finding out more about how the world actually works. Yeah. Because of this decision to tell it from the perspective of the volleyball. I'm going to keep saying that because I kind of like that description. Um, I think you're developing a new literary theory here, Spencer. The volleyball tale. Uh, I feel like it's able to give you elements of both in a way that wouldn't wouldn't feel as natural. Because a lot of those narratives, they they kind of have to have the shift midway through to make that happen. Mm -hmm. But because this is always being told from an outside perspective that isn't as invested and we're solely learning about the researchers, we get touches of both those kind of stories in a way that I feel works even if I never really found the experience of the guy waking up for the first time as interesting as I ultimately found the last man narrative as it turned out to be. Like I said, it gave me a different way to appreciate the last man narrative than I had before, even if it led to a lot of buildup to get there. Yeah, and so, I mean, one of the things that this sort of narrative enforces that if you have the volleyball perspective, you can't have a a viewpoint that bounces around. No. Now... On that, can uh, you spike it though? <laughs> I think purposefully there is no spike. If there had been a spike in this story, it would have been telling the same story, and it would have lost a lot of the tragedy. I mean, but in, in the, mm-hmm. I think in the end, like you, you really net some good perspectives. I, I feel in the end, there's a lot of fault to go around. Well, even if it wasn't an ace of a story, um, some reasonable play happened. I mean, we've been served up something that I think is reasonable, I mean, at least for this collection. In the, in the end, we end on love. And um, let's leave this behind, please. <laughs> uh, I'm curious about the choice by the author. And this is very much a stylistic choice that's throughout the story. And they ha- it, it was fun. They had to do it differently in the audiobook than they do in the actual text. In mm-hmm. the audiobook, he's X, because you kind of mm-hmm. obviously can't say a blank. 
Um, why do you think there was that choice to do a blank in the page where the name was? I, well, to me, I think the question is, why did they do X and not white noise or something like that? I, I think it would have been... I think if they did white noise, they'd almost have to do a code at the beginning to explain what it was. Well, I think Whereas, white noise would also signify that something was being, like, redacted. Which it might be. I, yeah, but oh, that I, wasn't I my interpretation. It. My interpretation was that like our researcher had not given him a name because she knew he wasn't going to become her husband. Yeah. And maybe she might have named him her husband, husband's name if like it had been a success or if she had gotten permission or like whatever, if she had reached her goals. But I think she's been through this too many times to name the clone. Interesting. So I interpreted it as the clone was being named, but it's not something that he could accept and process. Mm -hmm. And so rejected it. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I think just based on the structure, I'm kind of defaulting towards BJ's interpretation there because this is always told from a second-person narrative. If it was told like lab notes mm-hmm. from, like from her perspective or from an omnipresent narrator, then that, that would work. I think it's structured like lab notes because that's the only kind of world that he has. But in the end, our entire experience of this is through his eyes. So there seems to be an element of she's calling him something. She's not literally calling him a void. But... He's either able not to process it, process it, or it's so foreign that it's never his anyway. But I'm not clear. It was an interesting choice to always have that being absent. It, yeah. it, it further helps informs, I guess, the second-person per- perspective of, of it being us that's experiencing it, because we're never given anything that isn't us, even if it is still somebody else's. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I guess is really again putting us in the mind of the clone there, because we're gi- we're gi- giving we're being given a series of experiences. We're being taught to experience this, but it's never ours even yep. if it's being told as if it is you. Um, and I think it was in this story that I began to hate the outro. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that sudden explanation from the curator. Yes. Because <laughs> it's always the same. And, like, I, I'd be often listening to these audiobooks, like, while doing something in lab or whatever else, and, not, like, I couldn't catch it. <laughs> yeah, the first couple of stories, I was sort of, like, oh, maybe this will be different for each story. Partially because I had not paid much attention to it the first time around. Um, nope. Right. <laughs> nope. Same thing. Same three-minute outro following each story. Hmm. Well, uh, practical question, then. If we're all saying that, you know, this story was ultimately at least some realm of successful, mm-hmm. why aren't we saying that we all liked it more than we really did? Because it all seems like we enjoyed it. We thought it was good. But it doesn't seem like any of us are particularly passionate about it. So yeah, I, I was going to liken this to, like, meatloaf and mashed potatoes. It's never a bad meal, but it's never one that you would ever return <clears> to <throat> other than, like, you know, some, you know, nostalgia sake that you had an experience with it. Like, it, it's nothing about it was um, unique enough to set it apart, and it was slow enough that it's not special. Yeah, I would, I mean, I would agree with that, especially the slow part. Um, but, you know, for me, I, and we know, you know, I've talked a lot on this podcast about like, I don't have to emotionally resonate with characters. I don't have to like mm-hmm. characters. Like, that's fine. But I did not, I just didn't find anything to particularly latch onto with either of these characters. Um, yeah. And it just made it. Maybe it's because the researcher who I do think ends up being the main focus of the story and who does have the kind of most, the most um, nuanced and interesting emotional valences about her. I mean, for half the story, we don't get any of that. Um, Mm -hmm. 
or it's slow to emerge. And by the time we get there, I'm sort of out on her as, as a person. Um, yeah. And then we have the like very intentional flat affect of, of X. Um, and so just none of it, none of it really hooked me in the way that it would, would need to, for me to feel passionate about this story. I mean, partly for my mind, it's, I was starting to get hooked into the, you know, emotionally connecting with the characters by the end, but there wasn't much really time to go with that. Whereas previously there was a, a lot of distrust that was building up mm. that didn't ultimately reach a conclusion. There was a lot of distrust that ultimately just kind of fell to the wayside. Because that well, when you say didn't reach his conclusion, she was clearly untrustworthy and doing terrible <laughs> things to him. And so... Yeah, but... And it, is setting up like, to do so again to another version of him. Yeah, but there isn't... I'm not, I'm not, I guess I'm not really sure what I'm trying to say with this, of where that character kind of comes to terms with that over the course of a few pages and even starts to sympathize with that character a little. It's not ultimately the resolution I guess I would expect with that kind of distrust plot. That we yeah, I'm, I, it's sort of a weird balance of I distrust you and everything about you, but I also feel like this connection. Um, I mean, this could, mm -hmm. as we're sort of going back to the yellow wallpaper, be a very sort of convoluted tale of abuse. No, it is. <laughs> I mean... From an agency perspective, there is profound manipulation, and I'll just say mentoring, because it amuses both of you so much when I keep saying it, um, that's going into this, of where this person, and this is legitimately a person in their own right, mm -hmm. is never allowed to be an independent person. That from day one, they are being tasked in the role of being what the researcher needs them to be, regardless yeah. of what their own will is upon that. And at the at the end of that, and I think that it's it's very clear that the researcher knows this going into each of these iterations um, of the clone that like this person is being brought into existence not only to be trained to memories that are are not native to his body um, or his mind, but also is being brought up just to die. Yeah, and even yeah. even it calls her out on that at one point. Is that why would you bring me into this world? Mm -hmm. If there's there's a certain kind of almost like you know I don't know Tay-Sachs situation of where I my fate is inevitable here. Mm -hmm. You logically know this, but you're still inflicting it upon me, me mm -hmm. yeah. because of what you need. Yes. Yeah. And that um, makes you a bad person. And but... it's it's unclear. Do you think that the researcher in this in this process in these many iterations, do you think that she actually sees the clones that she creates as people? I think she sees. I mean. Her description of it is, you're doing as well as you can be, or you're as perfect as you could be, or similar to the house, you're not the same, but, well, what can you do? She sees him as a shadow. She sees him as a, va as a, mm. as something that triggers a memory rather than actually a thing. Um, and I, why that is, we can debate, but I don't think she ever really sees him as a person, maybe as a, something that could be. But at present, it's almost just a vague shadow that, if anything, makes her more sad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, I buy that. Um, well, this ultimately was a rather depressing story in a variety of ways. <laughs> Real fucking yeah. sad, guys. <laughs> um, I, I would say I've been reading all of these with Bridget, and this was actually her favorite of, of the uh, ones that we've done so far. Oh, interesting. Um, which really? <laughs> yeah, she she liked this decisively better than the other ones. Did she tell uh, you why? But, did... uh, because she's. Her explanation for it was that she was much more invested in it by the end, that she felt more for the story than she felt with the others. The other ones felt, she felt rather distant from them, but for this, she actually kind of got into it. Interesting. Uh, I'm very curious to see how she will feel about 
uh, Summer Frost, and also I want to cross-examine her about what why she did not like Ark. <laughs> That's the real the the real conundrum here. We we can give her a cameo in our in our summary podcast. <laughs> um, but I'm curious. I'm curious. You know, just to do a proto ranking, where would the story in your minds compare to the other three we've already done? Um, I think. Above randomize, which isn't going to be <laughs> going hard. out on a limb, aren't you there, mm-hmm. Major? Um, I, I I'm really curious where where the next one will will rank, um, but I know where it ranks for me, BJ. <laughs> yeah, um, it, it has been interesting to read so many reviews that have just said, well, you know, it was fine, but it's not as good as Summer Frost as compared to what Sarah has said so far about that story. I'm gearing up, yeah, guys. I, I have the, thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're going to. Summer Frost is probably going to be a long episode. Yes, um, it was a long story. <laughs> so I think this was fine. I think this sort of gets muddled in the middle. It isn't. It's definitely not in my favorites, but I, I think it doesn't detract from the uh, the collection. Mm-hmm. And I honestly like of the choices. I think the ones that in some ways detract the most are actually like it is probably randomize and you know we'll we'll see where where those uh opinions end up with summer frost but in terms of the like exploration of something interesting Mm -hmm. i think this succeeded um where some do more or less yeah i have i mean i these six stories for me i have like just three very distinct um rankings for them and there there are two each for all of them and this one and um you have arrived at your destination are just very firmly in the middle for me um for very like i think they do very different things i think they're very they're successful and unsuccessful in like very different aspects um Mm -hmm. but like i i really go back and forth on them um on like which would beat out the other one, I don't know, but they are they are both very very clearly in that like mediocre pile. It, it, it's yes, an, it's an interesting comparison because they they have a they're very different stories, mm-hmm. but they do have a certain kind of kinship in my mind between yes. the two of them. And so these were mm-hmm. these were the two that we had kind of BJ and I had paired together. Mm-hmm. Um, Summer Frost was going to get kind of paired with Randomize, I believe, right? So yeah, we're and so like instead of doing out, a outside in. Right, exactly. Well, in my mind, this is the kind of, like, I like your description, BJ, this is a very palpable story. It is easily digestible, it is easily appreciated. It's the kind of story that holds a collection together. Is that you can mm-hmm. have, you can have mm-hmm. ones in the margins that do very unique things or take a lot, of, a lot of risks, but you also need a fair number of stories that are just, yeah. don't necessarily push the boundary or anything else, don't necessarily offend your readership, they're not intended to. They just work. They're a successful story, and you go, oh, that's nice. You can easily recommend it to other people, but then you kind of move on to what the next one's going to be. That's it, That's a really good point, Spencer, because like, if you have a collection of short stories that are all novel and innovative and unique and really pushing the boundaries, like that's actually exhausting to read. That's tiring. Yeah, it's, yeah, if, it's not fun. No. Yeah, and I, I think that's when you have a collection from an author, they all have sort of a through line, but when you have a bunch of different authors and they they're not sort of working together mm-hmm. which they weren't here having ones like this you know as you're saying like and and as i sort of mentioned before this is a meat and potato story yeah. like it yeah that's not a criticism no uh-uh. yeah 
that 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 a proper meat and potato story is hard to do. It is hard to be something that works for a lot of people successfully. Um, yeah, it's all it's part of the reason I'd almost say that of the ones we've done so far, this is the one I think could be most successfully adapted to television and have it be good. Um, I, so yeah. I think the problem that I'd have with it is the Blair Witch Project sort of destroyed all like first person <laughs> uh, shaky cam stuff. I, I don't. But think I think it, yeah. Sorry. That would be the way to do it, basically. Mm-hmm. And it'd be a, I could see it being a great, like, you know, 20 or 45 minute episode of something. But I don't know how you'd get over the, you know, unstable camera being unpleasant. It, it, it's been done before. I mean, Twilight Zone famously had a, 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 that kind of through the eyes perspective throughout most of its story, and it worked. Mm-hmm. It, it just. Yeah, it, it, it with it being done so often now, it could be hoping successfully. But that's just yeah. It, if it is filmed well, it can be an utterly useless statement to say, but it's true. <laughs> but I yeah. think it would have to like this is inherently a story that would translate to, as you said, BJ, an episode of something. I mean, a film length yeah. version of this would be interminable. Oh God, this is a yeah. this is a short film at best. A, te- a television show. I mean. <laughs> we're kind of returning to it but a black mirror comparison for that kind of ensemble show could work i mean it's not wrong yeah <laughs> yeah right um, um i mean like you could make a feature film but i think it would they... have the same problems as the mist did well honestly. i think yeah i think you'd have to write outside of the bounds of the story yeah um, i think and i think if, the more we get of the outside world the more we get to descriptions the more we get of a complete narrative the less successful this would ultimately be yeah because like yeah. like you said sarah if we spend literally every day with this guy good lord with that drag and also if you see more of the outside world it becomes a very boring yeah uh, apocalypse story yes. we're, we're, we're crossing more into the into the uh, researcher's perspective in the classic last man on earth narrative which this is intentionally trying to do something different with and works better because it's trying to do something different with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, I mean, the, there's another book that I, I would recommend 98% of as being wonderful, <laughs> um, which, Sarah, you uh, ended up reading, I think, Dog Stars. Yes. You know, the last chapter, I uh, can sort of give or take, mm-hmm. or, you know, how the story ended, but, like, everything else about it was just wonderful. Yes. BJ, whenever you rec- whenever you start a story with, I can recommend ninety eight percent of it. I'm always assuming you're going to say this alien shore. It's like <laughs> great. <laughs> Other than that last like five pages, it was great. <laughs> I mean, the, so I think there are a lot of stories where it's a great story and the ending needs to be abrupt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there are some authors that can handle it, and there are some authors that can't. And I think that authors that can't handle it. They land the plane and it's bumpy and and not great, rather than flying off into the sunset. Right. And I, I can almost count on two hands the number of stories where I've been fully satisfied by the ending. Endings are hard. Uh, uh, I I appreciate the openings of stories more just by nature, but yeah, a lot of times, as you said, they get the plane down, but. In terms of a truly satisfying landing, it's hard to find. There is a reason where I, why I do not remember 80% of the endings of books that I read. A last coded end of the story on. What do you guys think of the repeated ending for this? Because that is a common trope. I've seen that we've seen that a lot of fiction. Does it work here? I mean, it's it's super tropey, but I think that it is, I I don't know. I thought it was fine. I mean, it works. I, I think that it, try well i think that it completely failed in that there seem to be a lot of people that don't understand what happened i think 
Yeah. Well, that's on them. No, I'm sorry. You, we are not judging the success or failure of the ending of a short story based on people on the internet. No. So other than that, like, I think it, it was relatively successful because like it, it, instead of making it unclear as to whether she's going to continue yes. and mm-hmm. make it probable, it says it definitively. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I agree that it clears up some ambiguity. I think that we essentially get two endings to this story. We get the ending from one page earlier, of which the ending of the actual perspective we had throughout the entire tale. But then we get effectively what is more of an ending for what we ultimately are viewing as the main character, the real character, mm-hmm. of where her continual cycle is continuing, whether it ultimately has any chance of success or not. So I, it was, I feel it's the inevitable ending, and I'm satisfied enough with that, even if it's not particularly, you know, interesting or surprising. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is the meat and potatoes ending for this story. We, yes. we keep coming back mm-hmm. to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's really what it is. You know, it, it's it's a, a story that passes. It's filling. It's fine. It's not... There are interesting parts about it, mm-hmm. but, you know, it's, it's not the... You don't run to your friends and say you have to read this story. So, yeah. it, Sarah, being a prior, prior teacher, is this the B-plus story or the B story? I would give it a, I would give it a B. I think it's a solid B. Mm-hmm. It, this is a success. Mm-hmm. You've not only passed, you've done well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, in fact, one of the Amazon reviews we did not talk about uh, that was, like, a two-star review, I think, was, like, this is a solid effort for, like, a college writing class. Wow. I think this is like an A plus for college yeah, writing, but absolutely. but I, I agree yeah, with the yeah, thought. Yeah. For, if, if we're judging this, you know, for, <laughs> in, in, if we're no way judging this the way a course would be judged, for like within the entire medium, it's a B. If someone submitted this in the college course, they're going to be talked about. Absolutely. Um, yeah. This is where you end up with an author that publishes, you know, essentially while they're an undergrad or just after. Mm-hmm. So. But and. It does actually encourage me to read more of his work with mm-hmm. the expectation that, kind of like you described, Sarah, it's a nice book to pick up to read on a plane. Yeah. And that, that again, is a compliment. I do not mean that in any way judging. No, that is like a, a and we've been talking about this now for a while, but that is like a really important, just, it's not a genre, but that's a really important, like, classification of books in the world. Book. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that there should be a bookstore that has classifications like that, <laughs> whereas this doesn't have chapters, and so you shouldn't read it while trying to go to bed. This is a better, you know, vacation book. There are some or, bookstores, and there is one in Asheville that I really love that um, have an entire section that has brown paper wrapped books with mm-hmm. descriptions not unlike that on the front of them, and you buy them blind. <laughs> it, it, it is an important thing to point out. It's like. Did you guys ever read House of Leaves? Yes. It's, you, you, have, you, you have read House of Leaves. I have, I had yeah. a friend recommend that I like read that on a vacation. Oh, no. That, <laughs> it's like, they got to the part where, I, I, okay, in this section I need to read in a mirror. is like, okay, we have a very different perspective on what a vacation book is. <laughs> That's in, homework. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> BJ, if people are looking for things that they can listen to on vacation, where can if they find them? people are looking for homework. Or <laughs> uh, that. You can find all of our content as well as a handful of other pods, including Mangum Talks TV, 
um, Mangum Laughs, and uh, a variety of all our other things, as well as our uh, podcast within a podcast, Pottering Around, on MangumTalks.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any questions, comments, or otherwise, you can reach us through our website. Um, just click Contact Us, again, on MangumTalks.com, or go to our Facebook page, which is just uh, Mangum Reads. And yeah, we look forward to your comments and suggestions. And what should they be reading for next time, actually? They should be reading Summer Frost by the recommendation of what's in the Forward Collection and maybe not Sarah. <laughs> uh, who wrote Summer Frost? I actually don't have that in front of me. Uh, Blake Crouch. Yep. Gotcha. So the guy that suggested this whole, whole thing and who actually had a pretty good read-on-the-plane novel, which I read on a plane, <laughs> is what we're doing next. And I am looking forward to it because it is just so rare we see Sarah pissed off about a story, and I'm excited to see what that's going to be. <laughs> We're going to be in for a bumpy ride, guys. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to take There's two... some turbulence on that one. <laughs> and, and it's going to take over two hours of an audiobook to get there. All right. Um, well, this yeah. has been fun, y'all. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it.